they leave there and think, wow, there's more to the Son of God than, than I understood before. And so simplicity and passibility, aseity, these great doctrines that we put together under classical theology, people in our pews, by and large, don't know these things, but they want to know gone better. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Well, if you've been listening to the Credo Podcast, then you may have heard Carl Truman's inaugural address for the Center for Classical Theology on classical theology and the modern mind, as he called it. Well, after that address, we had the privilege of hosting a question and answer time that was not only with Carl and myself, but also other theologians such as James Dolezal and Kevin DeYoung fielding questions from executive editor Timothy Gatewood. These questions were so fun to answer because they covered everything from the future of classical theology to how to implement classical theology in the local church. We hope you enjoy this Q&A and come to the Center for Classical Theology next time. It will be hosted every November in 2024. It will take place in San Diego, California, and we will have as our speaker, Michael Horton himself. I can't wait to see you there. Good evening. As Dr. Barrett said, my name is Timothy Gatewood, and I am the Associate Director for the Center for Classical Theology. And I wanted to take a minute uh, and once again extend my gratitude uh, for your attendance tonight, not only as a representative of the center, but as someone who has benefited from theological retrieval, from classical theology. Uh, it, it does my heart really good to see a room full of pastors and students and scholars who are willing to make a trip, engage in these discussions, uh, and work alongside the center uh, for theological retrieval. Uh, perhaps you change just to throw tomatoes. That's also fine. Uh, we welcome that engagement. Uh, and I guess I should thank you for reserving it for this point. So you welcome Dr. Truman. Uh, and at this point, we would like to shift the conversation a little bit to a conversation on the modern mind, on classical theology. Uh, and so, Dr. Truman, uh, I will pose you a question, but we are not limiting participation. So by all means, if any of our guests feel the need to jump in, uh, you're more than welcome to do so. But Dr. Truman, uh, hearing you speak tonight, I think you would agree with me when I say that even when we engage with the classical theology or with the pre-modern mind, that we are still modern people inundated in modernity. So is the goal to transcend modernity and to become pre-modern thinkers, or are we modifying the modern mind with pre-modernity, with classical theology, into something new? And to that end, are there modern theologians who exemplify the way that we should proceed with theology? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think a couple of comments. Um, one, I, first of all, I think we need to make a... One of the things I didn't raise in the lecture, but I think is important is I'm speaking by and large to pastors and ministers. I think it is unreasonable to think that a lot of people in the pew are going to have time to read a lot of great classical theology. The reason we have pastors and preachers is that they are paid to be the professionals who read this stuff and change it into something that can be understood and grasped, means something to, to congregants. So the first thing I want to say is the burden of your question, I think, has to be addressed by, by pastors and ministers. Secondly, I think the way the world is going at the moment is going to make devotion easier on this front. And that I think the era of non-committed Christians is coming to an end. That we are moving, I won't say this is into a pre-modern world, but we are moving back more akin to the world of, say, 17th century English nonconformity or 2nd century Christians in, in the Roman Empire, uh, where those who attend churches are going to be there because they're committed to what's going on. And I think in that context, it will be easier to teach people serious theology because they'll be wanting serious theology. So I think that, that a large part of the question you're asking is going to be solved by shifts that are taking place within society itself at this particular point in time. Yeah, if I could just add to, uh, Carl, what you said there. Um, it, it reminds me to some extent of Acts 17. Uh, I think Acts 17 for a lot of evangelicals is notable because of Paul and the Bereans. Uh, Paul encounters these Bereans, and we you will hear this passage preached in so many different ways, commended for their uh, return to the Scriptures immediately to judge what Paul is saying. Uh, there's a certain level at which Paul can make a lot of assumptions that, well, if, if we're honest, is very convenient for Paul and for us when we also find ourselves in that situation in which, to some degree, they know the Scriptures and they are able to turn to the Scriptures. Uh, but we also forget then what happens in the rest of Acts 17, which is Paul in the Areopagus in which Paul is so strategic, he does not make that assumption. Uh, and I think more and more, this is the world, if, I, if I'm hearing you right, this is the world in which we are living in now. Uh, I just, the other day, was sitting waiting for my children to finish swimming, and this young man came up to me. I was, I was reading Irenaeus, and he came up to me and wanted to know what I was reading. And I thought to myself, like, how in the world do I begin this conversation? Um, as, it, as the conversation went on, I learned, first of all, he was uh, a Muslim. And then second of all, he did not believe in absolute truth. 
in any meaningful sense of the word. Uh, he was uh, what we would call a relativist, uh, not just, religiously in particular. And it occurred to me, this is an Acts 17 Areopagus encounter in which he's never even opened the scriptures. And at that point, I had to, I, I tried at least, I'm not sure I succeeded, but I had to interact with him philosophically uh, we had to discuss the basic building blocks of the doctrine of God that distinguished Christianity from his misunderstanding of, say, everything from the attributes of God to the doctrine of the Trinity before we could even get to a point where we could talk about who is Jesus Christ. He wanted to jump to Jesus Christ, and I resisted because I knew the type of Christ he was most interested in, which was a quite a postmodern one. And so I don't know if that answers the question entirely, but I find more and more, yes, we are living in a modernistic world. Uh, you know, we could go further and argue, you know, a postmodernistic world uh, in which we, we need to take a page from Paul who in Acts 17 is not just a biblical scholar, but a philosopher, uh, so that he can start a dialogue and actually use some of their own Greek heritage to call them to account in ways that were frankly embarrassing for them, but also opened the door so that he could lay down the, the proper pre-commitments necessary to even get to a point where he could talk about a man who could rise from the dead. And in Paul's case, that meant that been going directly to the doctrine of divine society, which I think, I think serves Carl's point because in, in that case, if we don't, if we let go of the classical doctrine of God, Paul does not have an apologetic evangelistic argument or conversation at that point. He he's lost from the beginning. I, I think in some respect, if we're going to recover classical theism to your question, Timothy, uh, we are going to have to take the fight to certain dogmas of modernity. The idea that we can take the conclusions of classical theism or even maybe the conclusions of our confessions and map them onto an ontology that is unarticulated, a metaphysics that is there, it's operating, it's controlling the way that people think reality is and how truth corresponds to reality, if we, if we don't begin to undermine some of this, those subversive elements, if we think that we can give them the conclusions uh, and that those conclusions can set as firmly on that foundation as they did on whatever metaphysical assumptions Thomas Aquinas might have been making or John Owen might have been making about being and substance and nature and change. If uh, So in some respects, this is going to, uh, to recover classical theism is going to recover something about their view of reality and how language and knowledge corresponds to it. So there's going to be a, I, I always tell my students, I, don't, I hate modernity. I'm, I want to recover pre-modernity, but that's not comprehensive. I always tell them, I like elastic, Cotton underwear, <laughs> air travel, and refrigeration. So it's not comprehensive. In that order? <laughs> I think I'd put cotton underwear first if I had to do the order, yeah. Uh, but, but, then, but then there are also, I mean, so there are things that modernity and the scientific revolution have given us that are, are amazing. Uh, metaphysics isn't necessary, and, and being and nature uh, beyond physics are not necessarily where modernity is strong, and those are areas where the Christian tradition and the pre-modern 
modern period was exceptionally strong. And I think some of that's going to have to be recovered. And then also, at least in the scholarly level and at the pastoral level, wisely and more subtly brought into conflict with the assumptions that we've all been trained to make and don't know we're making. Are we all supposed to say something? Or I can wait for the next question. I was just saying, you know, I, I'm the least of all the the apostles up here, and my 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 number one job is to be a pastor. But I was just saying to to those being training for that or our pastors, that this stuff does preach, and if you can teach it clearly, people do want to hear it. And one of the the keys is to connect it that. If what you're you're making is, and I love the title and, uh, and classical theology, and, and so I love what the center is doing here. But ultimately, it's because we want people to have a big view of God. They want to know more of who God is, more of who Christ is. Several years ago, I was invited to speak in Australia at a, a, a student conference, and they let me uh, do a talk on monogenes and do a talk on on the only begotten uh, Son of God. And uh, I don't know that I, I did it so brilliantly, but people listened. They thought, wow, I, I've sung Christmas carols my whole life that talk about of the Father's love begotten. I've, 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 I've said this word in the creed, and now I'm getting some explanation for it. And even if 30% of it, you know, lodges in their brain, which is, let's be honest, about 33% of it is lodged in our brain. We don't get it all either. They leave there. I think, wow, there's more to the Son of God than, than I understood before. And so simplicity and passability, aseity, these great doctrines that we put together under classical theology, people in our pews by and large don't know these things, but they want to know God better. And if you can give them these new categories and these new terms, yeah, you can always appeal to the, you know, the, the eggheadery folks. And that's why we have a con that's why we have ETS. And, and you know, that's great. And we can give papers to tens of people who will come. <laughs> to those papers. Um, but the rank and file people in the pew, they really will be moved to worship by these doctrines. That's very good. Uh, Kevin, I want to use your answer to springboard. Um, and this is once again for everybody. But practically speaking, how do we do that? We have these churchmen. We have uh, these students in school who, like you said, have been trained to view reality a certain way. It affects their entire paradigm. These are new concepts. So how do we introduce these people who want to know more about these concepts uh, to classical theology? I think it has to be done through the teaching of the church. And I don't think we should lack confidence in doing that. I think that the great thing, it seems to me, about a lot of classical theology is it was written by men who are actually engaged in the cut and thrust and the mug of ordinary lives. I think of a particular example, uh, Athanasius' work on the Incarnation which I got the students to read when I was teaching my Doctrine of God class. And at the end of the course, one of the students came to me and said his father was dying of cancer. And what he'd done was he'd, he'd taken to sitting at his grandfather's bedside and, and had read him Athanasius' On the Incarnation, 
which really is a classical theological application of classical doctrine of God to death and resurrection. Uh, I, I think if we, yeah, I'm sort of building, I suppose, on what Kevin's saying, I think we should have confidence that because classical theology, it may appear to trade in abstractions, but terminates in the great truths of the Bible that touch people's lives in profound ways. I think we should have confidence that, that this, this can be done. I don't think you can produce a one-size-fits-all. I think if you're preaching, you know, I preach once a month in a tiny congregation in Western Pennsylvania made up primarily of, of farmers. I think my strategy there on this is going to be different to the person who's preaching to a church in a, a university town where there are a lot of uh, students and professors. That's not to be condescending towards farmers. It's simply saying pastors need to know their congregants. Uh, but I think we need to start with the confidence that this stuff can be done, the confidence that much of classical theology will actually connect to people's real lives, and then think about specific strategies for doing that in the context in which we find ourselves. I'll just say real quickly, to use the the things that are already present in most of our churches, so I'm so glad you're doing the, the anniversary of 325, there will be, I mean, just parades throughout the country and the world, we hope. Uh, but I'm, I'm doing a four-week Sunday evening service coming up on, on Nicaea. So you have that. You can talk about classical theology or, or the hymns. So I mentioned one of them, you know, and can it be, tis mystery all the immortal dies. So you have to talk about impassibility. It's, it's not a mystery that the mortal dies. It's not a mystery that the passable suffers. You, you remove the, the mystery. You, you remove the majesty, the doxology of it. Tis mystery all the immortal dies. Well, the doctrines of passibility remove that. They make, that, they make it easy. They, they remove why was the incarnation so necessary because God, the person of the Son, was going to do the most fun God-like thing possible. And then you have, as in, in Wesley's hymn there, that thou might, like God, and some hymnals will change it to Lord because it's a little safer, but, but you can... You can you can defend that thou my God should die for me. Well, you're going to, you could talk about Cyril's communication of idioms. You could talk about all sorts of things that if you said tonight's, you know, Sunday school class on communication of idioms, they may not turn out for it. But if you have a hymn that they've all sung and they all know, and at some point you're explaining how can, are we right to say that God died? We sing it. Well, there's a way that we, we shouldn't say it, and there's a way that we can say it, and here's why. And you're opening up vistas to them, and people will say, wow, I learned something. I never thought that about that hymn that I've sung my whole life. And that goes to yeah, the minister, the elders, need to be very proactive in what songs are sung, and I think what is prayed from the pulpit. I think the whole of the church service, we need to be thinking in terms of how does this edify people and how does it raise in their minds the, the right issues to discuss? We just say how deep the Father's love, okay, great modern hymn, but it has that line, uh, the, the, and seer, the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. 
So my, my music guy, who's really, really good, he said, I want to change it. So, well, I don't know if we can just change it, but, but why don't you say something about it? Because you can, that could be, you know, patripassionism is the father suffering loss as the son, or is it the pain of searing loss is the son's loss as the father turns his face away? Well, let's interpret it that way. I once had asked Keith Getty, what did Stuart Townend mean? And he basically said, whatever you wanted it to mean, <laughs> go for it. He probably wasn't thinking on that level, but there's a lot of these things and it requires the pastor to be attuned. I think sometimes there's the fear when you address this, particularly in a sermon, that the sermon is going to quickly devolve into a pretty academic lecture, uh, which can be enjoyable for some people and not for most. Uh, so how does it play out? I think sometimes just a, a brief word of clarification can take 15 seconds. If you come to a text that says that God was grieved in his heart, it's not that hard to say that this is speaking after the manner of men as men oppose men graves in their heart oppose a sin so God is opposed to this sin the grief in the heart is meant to stir up in your mind the notion that God is opposed to sin that's about 20 seconds and then you're right back you don't lose the mojo so to speak of the of the text as you're exposing it but you're putting in clarif theological clarification you're teaching people to interpret theologically while you're exegeting a passage of scripture and I think some particularly on passability they're afraid that this is just going to, this is the scenario I, I paint for people. This is a hypothetical. I hope it never becomes a reality, but a hypothetical. If most, if you're a pastor, if most of your people believe that God had a body and physiological functions, that is to say, like had tummy indigestion because the Bible said his bowels were turned over within him three different times, but it speaks about his inflamed nostrils, that he had a sore nose. If you, if you thought reasonably that your people, when they heard those texts, were drawing those conclusions because they thought God had a body and physiological functions, you would probably feel compelled to, at least on occasion, mention that these are, you might even teach them the word anthropomorphism what it, and what it means, and it might take you two minutes in a sermon and then get back to it. But you might on occasion mention that this is, if you knew that your people were particularly inclined to interpret physiological God talk as literally true. Now, that's one, now probably most of your people don't do that. But... I would, well, I'm not a betting man, but I'd lay odds that when you get to texts like, and so God was grieved in his heart, that most of the people sitting in our pews, even in our reformed churches, do at some level interpret that in a literal fashion, completely out of step with the way their own tradition ever intended or taught that text before. And so then I would say for the same reasons, you would need to, to serve those people, offer some theological clarification. That doesn't, I mean, it takes some skill to do that well, to do it enough to actually be saying something, but subtly enough to not be derailing the momentum of a sermon. But I think on a, on a semi-regular basis, you begin to teach theological interpretation from the pulpit and they do need to they do need to notice that you're stopping to do this that it matters to the pastor because then it will matter to them so a lot of the conversation um, has revolved around the doctrine of God for good reason um, but when we say classical theology some may distinguish that between classical theism and so uh, my question is, how far does classical theology extend 
uh, especially in terms of agreement and cooperation, are we looking to retrieve everything? Uh, is it classical anthropology? Is there a classical uh, view of you know, government, whatever it may be? Um, what are the parameters around theological retrieval in terms of classical theology? It seems to me there's an obvious difference between the, the classical understandings of government and classical understandings of God. And God does not change. We, we know that history throws up various forms of government. Paul himself does not seem to be demanding that Nero step aside and make place for you know, a bicameral form of you know, constitutional government. So I, I think the answer to that question on one level is it depends on how far out from that center in the doctrine of God you go as to, to you know, what you're really interested in recovering. I would add that I, I do think that a recovery of classical anthropology may be one of the most urgent needs of the moment on the grounds that uh, I think C.S. Lewis correctly called it in 1943 uh, when he, he gave the lectures that became the uh, abolition of man, that the 20th century is marked by a, a crisis in, in an understanding of what it means to be a human being. So I think, yes, most of us, on the, all of us on this panel perhaps have been interested in the doctrine of God, particularly for various reasons. But I think classical anthropology that reaffirms the importance of, of human essence as critical to understanding, a biblical understanding of what it means to be a human being is something we need, we need to recover as well. Yeah, if I could add to that, um, I think that the reason classical theology is so extensive, maybe more than we even get it, give it credit for, is because in classical theology, uh, more or less everyone understood what we're about. We're, we're to be contemplating God first and foremost. And then, as the famous definition goes, all things in relation to God. Now, if you actually think about that definition of theology, that's simply a biblical way of distinguishing between true worship and idolatry. So we don't have to overcomplicate things. Uh, now, that being the case, if that's true, well, well, then our doctrine of God extends to every facet of the Christian faith in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Carl, you, your example here is, is quite pertinent. Uh, how do we apply the doctrine of God to the current crisis in anthropology? Well, in one sense, it's, it's quite easy. Uh, God is his essence. That cannot, when we turn then to man, if we're going to, in any sense, preserve that creator-creature distinction, we, well, suddenly we Christianity rubs up against the culture in the most contradictory way, in which those outside these doors are saying, no, I determine my essence. That is about as antithetical as it gets, but at the root of it is a, is a distinction that, yes, is quite technical. We talk about essence and existence, and what, what's the difference, and how does that play out in the, the creature but not the creator? <laughs> That can feel quite technical, but it affects our entire paradigm of ethics. 
Uh, and just to give one other example here, uh, classical theology, it, it, so here it pervades into anthropology, but it also, it also pervades not just into the Christian life, but eschatology. I, I think the easiest way to kill classical theology today would be to completely divorce it from spirituality. I don't know about you, but when I went to college, you took a class on theology, and maybe, maybe over here, somewhere along the road, completely severed from that class on theology, you took something that called spirituality. But when you go back and read Athanasius and countless others, they did not have that strict dichotomy in their mind. And it's also, a, that's, a, that's a very biblical default. So you think of Psalm 27, David's one passion, one desire is to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. Or or first John three, I, I've preached on this text before, you're talking about how it can preach Kevin, in which John says, You will become like him when you see him as he is. So suddenly the beatific vision informs and actually transforms how we define sanctification, glorification, the eschaton, and on a pastoral level, how you give your people hope in the midst of a body that's failing, suffering that's overtaking them, a world that seems just distraught with anxiety. Suddenly the beatific vision, which is a classical doctrine and entirely based on the doctrine of God, that has now redefined their entire paradigm for the Christian life. So in that sense, it's it's extensive in the, in the most excellent of ways. I think uh, to your point about boundaries, and this is I, maybe others on the panel felt the same way I did. There's not a checklist that says, you know, I mean, maybe on year three, we will have a lecture on why we should recover, you know, monarchy. <laughs> but, and tell our role. Hey, I'm an American citizen. Uh, <laughs> Give him a year off. We can tap uh, Carl for that. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a question as to, so I think some of it is just the question of things nearer the essence of the faith. Who God is, is definitive of who we are as Christians. The object of our worship, that we worship this God and not a false God, in fact is what is one of the things that binds us together a common object of worship and so there's a there's a primacy the same thing with regard to christology as well that this is this is why we are called christian because the word took on flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory glories of the only begotten of the father and so i do think that we need to bear in mind primary and secondary order of doctrine um, concerns. I think even manners of church government, uh, Carl's a Presbyterian. I'm a bad Presbyterian because I'm a Baptist in a Presbyterian church. You're not far from the kingdom of <laughs> That's what I was fishing for. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, this is, yeah, there's like we we have honest disagreements uh, on issues of polity and administration administration of sacrament, and we don't want to relegate these and say they don't matter, or even act as though they haven't been there haven't been disagreements about them in the past among classical theologians. But it is a prioritizing primary, secondary, and perhaps tertiary doctrines. The one other thought I want to just pitch on this is. In the right now, there is the one other thing, one danger I see for classical theism as well, maybe not as significant as the one you raised, but is maybe the challenge of sentimentalism. 
Uh, some of some of us, I'm a sentimentalist. I have to fight my sentimentalism. I like old things. Well, my kids don't think that's very cool, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I like old things. Do I like old theology because it's old? Um, is it because I'm an antiquarian and I like to collect old things, old confessions, old theologians, old books? Um, or do I like classical theology and do I love classical theology because it's true? And I, I think this is what, what we're going to have. It's not going to be enough just to say a great theologian once said it. Part of this whole retrieval effort is going to have to be recreating the whole thought process by which they arrived at the true conclusions they did so that those conclusions can be really owned by us. Um, and I think this is the other, maybe just another thought on this, and I won't go too far, much farther down the rabbit hole here, but I think the question of retrieval, there needs to be, so, I think the standard needs to be, and I, I'll just make it threefold, um, are, the are, the are the first principles clear? Is the reasoning on whatever topic we're talking about sound? And are the conclusions true? And actually, that's all I want to know ever. Are the principles clear? Is the reasoning sound of the conclusions true? And if it turns out on balance, classical theology does better at clearly showing me first principles, soundly reasoning on them to true conclusions, then that's why I love classical theology, not for sentimental or antiquarian reasons. And then classical theology is something that's living, not just sitting on the mantle as a you know, conversation piece after dinner. Right, James, uh, while you have the mic, I want to I target you for a second. Uh, as, as a Baptist, and uh, Dr. Barrett, this applies to you too, and maybe you can see where I'm going. Um, perhaps you've heard it lobbied against Baptists. Well, we're obviously willing to correct the past, right? We're willing to break apart from tradition when it comes to some pretty important matters. And so how do we remedy that? How do we as Baptists, those of us in the room who are, think of that? Well, I mean, again, though, uh, for me, it, and it's, and I, I don't, I don't take it that anyone, uh, an Anglican or a Presbyterian who may not be a, a credo Baptist uh, and comes to a different conclusion. But again, my, the way we're going to have the discussion is not by counting. I think this will be this. I would want to be very wary of just simply counting the number of people who historically have held a certain position. So sometimes I've had the argument put to me from Pado Baptist friends. Most of my world, except for my IRBS uh, friends here, most of my world is just filled with Presbyterians. I'm a Baptist, but I don't know many Baptists. Um, and the, often, the argument often put to me is, don't you just feel the force of so many people over so many centuries holding to that particular view of the recipients of baptism? And, uh, and then they'll often point to my own bookshelf and say, look at your bookshelf. It's 90% paedo-baptists. But then depending on where you are in my office, I could point to my bookshelf and say, it's 90% papists. And I don't believe in the authority of the Pope. I blame Carl for that a little bit. He's the one who turned me on to Tom Wynandy years ago, and then it just it was drip, drip, drip after that. But my point is, um, the reason I'm not a papist is because it's unconvincing to me. Does that make sense? And, and I would think the reason that, that Kevin or Carl are pedo baptists is because they're convinced by the arguments, and it's not just a matter of lots of people have held this over time. Nevertheless, and this is my nevertheless, 
certainly that should give me pause. If many, if many faithful people over a long duration of time have come to a similar conclusion on a topic, uh, I don't want to be heady or dismissive with regard to the seriousness of the position held by men that I hold in high regard. Uh, but at the, at the same time, I think with everything, it's going to come down to principles, reasoning, and conclusions, and whether we can clearly agree on those or not. Yeah, I'm going to use Carl against himself right now. So I apologize ahead of time. Uh, but Carl said something during the lecture that I, I greatly appreciated. And he talked about the development of doctrine. And I, I appreciate, Carl, that you mentioned that because I think as Protestants, we almost never talk about that. Uh, it's all, we just assume that's a Roman Catholic thing and, and we, we are not going to touch that. However, Carl made the great point that understood in the right way, actually it's, it's quite crucial. Um, we're not saying that truth changes, uh, but we are acknowledging, and this is, I think, where classical theology is so helpful, uh, it, it makes us humble. <laughs> we have to be humble to recognize, well, no, God's truth doesn't change, but, but that doesn't mean that, that we are always so quick to understand it or even embrace it for that matter. Um, now, that can, that in the history of the church, that has happened in a thousand ways. Um, I'm writing, I, I spent this summer and fall really uh, diving into the deep waters of Christology. And it was so fascinating to me that even though in the fourth century, we have these ma I mean, major triumphs with, with orthodoxy, nonetheless, between 325 and 381, these are decades that are filled with strife. There's this, this one point where one of the Cappadocians writes to Athanasius, uh, not knowing the future, and, and he's despairing. He says, we're, we're, we're out on the ocean, there's no hope. You, you've got to be the captain, Athanasius, step up and do something. Uh, orthodoxy is not going to win in the end. And, and you know the rest of the story, it, you almost wish you could intercede in that letter and say, Hold on. It, there, there's more. God's not finished writing that story. Uh, and then as I move forward, it was also remarkable. By the time you get to, you know, Maximus the Confessor, who has his tongue cut out and, and his hand cut off because of, of his Orthodox Christology, uh, you realize, oh, from all the good work that was done at Nicaea and then Chalcedon, there's still a development taking place in which they say, we now have to address another issue. Not that it's new, but we have to now extend those conclusions at those, those creedal councils to whether there's one or two wills in the incarnate Christ. And the answer, I've heard you talk about this before, even with your students, you'll come into a classroom and ask them, which is it? And by the way, your answer is either going to be heretical or orthodox. And, and then, you know, that, that students are usually frightened at that point. But the point is, there's a development that takes place there that is actually quite healthy and humble to recognize we haven't said everything that there is to say. How do we then extend these creeds and definitions now to whether there is one or two wills in Christ? Now, wh why am I you know, going on and on about this? Well, I, I think as a, as a Baptist, if I can, you know, and I too agree with James here, I, I have so many Presbyterian friends. Um, 
if, if I have a conversation with them, one of the, the things I usually say is I would I would put the, the argument in terms of what it means to be a Baptist in that category as well. Now, of course, we're going to disagree, but that's the good argument to have. OK, let's look at your argument. Let's look at my argument and let's let's wrestle through that. But I think as Baptists, unless we do that, unless we we see this as a refinement, then we never appreciate what the historian uh, Pelican said when he said we need to be Christians who embrace a Catholic substance, Catholic with a small c, meaning universal church, a Catholic substance that then develops and is refined and comes to a culmination of fulfillment in what he then called a Protestant principle. And so for me at least, the question then becomes as a Baptist, okay, what does that Protestant principle look like now with, say, ecclesiology or the liturgy or the sacraments? Yeah, and I think it's, it's somewhat related, you know, and just I love the word that you said at the very beginning, Kathy, and you just said there with our humility toward these things. So very much appreciate James saying that there is a danger that it, a retrieval project just becomes antiquarianism. Uh, you know, I think of what's sometimes called the Young Restless Reform Movement, which I, I guess was I was somewhat involved in since my blog was the Young Restless and Reform. Very clever. And uh, I think the the, the the, the claims of its you know eternal demise are somewhat exaggerated but to the to the degree that some of the shine has gone I, th I think we'd have to fairly say that there were some people in the throes of that in the 20 aughts and 2010s who were in it because it seemed like the new cool thing to do and for the people that, you know, their Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy shirts or whoever, we're, we're not just the Cappadocians are our homeboys. Um, yeah, they're, they're really worse homeboys that you could have. But so I love this point that it's because it, it, it leads us to the truth and it helps us to know more about God and Christ and, and the spirit. And I think to have the humility to say, let's just say as a as a generalizing assessment that 20th century evangelical theology was not at its best often in the doctrine of God. But with a sympathetic view, we can say, but they were having to fight back the modernists and the liberals, and they were having to, as Carlson, give attention to the doctrine of Scripture, and they were having all sorts, and now it's sexual. They were attending to a lot of important things, and this is how the church matures and how the church corrects. And so, you know, all of us at different times, I think on this panel, just, you know, with the, the 2016 Trinity debates, weighed in in different ways. And, and had to name some folks, hopefully humbly, that we thought maybe we could see things a little bit better given the, the long tradition of the church. But hopefully that comes with a spirit of, of humility towards brothers and sisters in Christ and understanding that so much of uh, friends and, and mentors and you know heroes in many ways, even in the, the post-World War II evangelicalism, got so many things right. And if we're living in a day of a great retrieval of, of classical theology, which we are, we should give thanks that we can live in such days with the pioneering work of, you know, a, a lot of people on this panel, myself excluded and other people in this room. And we should humbly give thanks for that uh, without having to cast it in, in a negative eye on everyone who maybe didn't 
get to live in such riches as we do right now. Very good. Um, Dr. Truman, I'm going to pose a question to you uh, since you didn't answer my baptism question, but that's all right. Uh, you have obviously written a lot about the origins of the modern mind, uh, but there's a pretty classic caricature that says Protestantism is the origin of the modern mind, right? And then the follow-up argument would be, well, if you want to transcend the modern mind, then then you return to Rome. Yeah. Um, where does one begin with that? Just had to know this was uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, when I think of I think of a review I did of uh, Brad Gregory's book, The Unintended Reformation, which is a, a very scholarly and very impressive piece of work. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was teaching historical method for the history department at Grove, and I, we read that book together as a class. And at the end of the uh, course, I, I took a vote from the students and said, who liked it and who hated it? Divided precisely along Protestant Catholic lines. The Catholic students loved it, the Protestant students hated it. For those unfamiliar with it, Gregory makes a pretty powerful case for Protestantism really being the, the, the source of the the collapse of, I suppose, external authority and the rise ultimately of kind of postmodern individualism. And I did a two-part review. You probably still find it online somewhere that it so annoyed Christian Smith at Notre Dame that I got an email from him where he, he referred to me as that I would be pitiful if I were not so annoying. I remember thinking, that's great. I'm going to use that as a jacket blurb someday. True would be pitiable if you were not so annoying. Uh, I think you know it's it's difficult to answer the question straightforward. Is Protestantism to blame? I would say no. Part of, and one of the reasons I would give is this: that at the beginning of the 15th century, uh, it is very at the beginning of the 16th century, it is very clear that Europe is about to undergo a major transformation of some kind. Uh, the papacy has really been, I don't think the papacy has really recovered from the crisis of the late 14th, early 15th century. At one point, you have three popes. The Holy Roman Empire has to intervene in order to stabilize the situation. Cardinal Newman, I have a mug with this on it, has this statement in his Development of Doctrine book. He says, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And I often point that to, out to the students and say, well, it really depends which history you're deep in, because it's actually pretty easy to be a Protestant if you're deep in late 14th, early 15th century history. And Catholicism is a mess. So my first response to Gregory would really, in the Gregory's thesis would really be this. Protestantism is an answer to a problem that already exists. Europe is crumbling. Uh, the printing press is transforming everything. Feudalism is uh, entering, you know, feudalism is never going to be the force that it was. You have the rise of, of the merchant classes. There are all kinds of things going on in Europe, socially, economically, and politically, that are transforming the nature of Western, at least Western European society. So the rise of individualism as such, it started already, one might say, at that point, because whole structures, external structures of authority are crumbling. You know, think, for example, of 
Even think of the way that time is structured. Time in the Middle Ages is structured according to the seasons. It makes sense. It's an agrarian society. Once you have industry, once you have the printing press, you don't need to structure time by seasons anymore. That's why the Zurich Reformation begins in 1522 uh, in the workshop of Christoph Raschow, the printer who breaks the Lenten fast. And that's a very powerful moment because what Froschauer is doing is he's shattering the medieval pattern of time. Something new is emerging. Now, Froschauer happens to be a Protestant. But what's really important about him is he's a printer. So the modern self, if you like, is set to emerge then anyway. And the way I would respond to a Catholic who says, well, it's all Protestantism, isn't it? Is to say Protestantism is an answer to the problem. You are free to think that it's the wrong answer, but you cannot claim that it's the problem. The problem is Catholicism. Catholicism has failed in the light of various political and technological developments that have emerged in the late Middle Ages. Are they Catholicism's fault? Not entirely. The, the printing press, is, it's not the Pope's fault, but it's going to fundamentally change how people think about the world. So... I suppose what I'm saying there is, hey, something's going to happen. It happens to be Protestantism. But really, the 13th, the 12th, 13th century social synthesis, for want of a better word, is collapsing. Going back to the 13th century, it's not going to happen. You can't have a 13th century again once you've got a printing press, let alone once you've got a laptop computer. You have these... Uh, uh, Roman Catholic integralists who are the sort of the Catholic equivalent of theonomists. And like theonomists, they're very loud online. Um, you know, they can't even organize their own church. They're not going to be taking over Congress for Jesus anytime soon. Yeah, it's, it's a, this, yeah, the southern, yeah, until the next budget crisis, of course. But, uh, uh, but it, it seems to me that what, what you have there is intellectuals playing nostalgic games. I don't want to quote that bit from the Lord of the Rings that everybody quotes about, you know, I don't want to live at this time, well, so do all who live at the time, but we just have to make the most of the times we live in. But there's a sense in which the world is the way it is. We have to live in that world. We're not going back to the 13th century. Protestantism did not create the modern self. It was the collapse of the medieval self in the wake of technological and sociological developments in the late Middle Ages that brought that about. Uh, and I want to say to the, the Catholics, we have our answer to modernity. It's called Protestantism. Your answer is the 13th century? I think that's a little less plausible than our answer, aren't you? Yeah, so, uh, very good. Just two quick thoughts. One, you know, just to reaffirm that, I mean, the, the, the Divine Comedy, Dante's great work at the beginning of the 14th century, he has three contemporary popes in hell. Uh, I mean, it, 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 you know, chief among them is Pope Boniface VIII, and he gets dragged through ev all three parts of it until he finally stands before St. Peter. And St. Peter is 
flush with anger. He's so upset at Pope Boniface VIII. Now, part of it was Pope Boniface VIII had vanished Dante. So it's just a lesson. Be careful who you make your enemies in case they go on to write the most enduring piece of literature in the Western world. And you're forever immortalized upside down because there were simoniacs in a bag of gold. But it's absolutely true, uh, just to add to our Protestant polemics, that you know, you get to John uh, Jan Haas, and one of the reasons that leads to his undoing is he refuses when the Pope has issued another crusade and has uh, and is having indulgences and collecting money for his crusade against, I think it's the King of Naples. And you know, Haas says, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to collect this money. So somebody had the church had to be reformed. The other thing is now on our side, it's Protestants to own that, of course, there are trade-offs. And I think it, it's Bavink who says when he's talking about the perspicuity of Scripture, he basically says, yes, d- does the perspicuity of Scripture and our doctrine of the the conscience, does this, does this in some way give rise to Protestantism and in some ways to the division and in some ways to the fractious nature? And he acknowledges, yes. But then he says, I'm paraphrasing, on the whole, it's worth it for the freedom of the conscience. And it's worth it to have the scriptures for everyone to read for themselves. And the problem of of disagreement among Protestants is not a Protestant problem. It's a human problem of knowledge. Uh, the Catholic Church has a, has a greater, you know, structural unity. But you know as well as anyone, Carl, uh, there are just as many divisions intellectually and theologically within that. So it's 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 the problem of human knowledge that we we see through a glass dimly, and we don't uh, all come to the same conclusions. And Protestant allows us to do that in a way that the medieval synthesis didn't. And some of that's lamentable. And I agree with Bothing that on the whole, I'll take that trade off. It's similar to religious freedom. Right. Now, religious freedom brings these problems, the problem of the modern self, to, to the fore. But I'd still rather live in America than in the Republic, People's Republic of China. Yeah. I do have a friend, a good conservative Catholic friend. John Master was reminding me uh, earlier on today. We had a lunch with this friend who's he had a position in, in of some seniority in the Catholic Church, and uh, we asked him, "What do you think of the present Pope, Pope Francis?" And he said, "He's a truly, truly, truly terrible Pope." But then he said, "Still, I'd still put him in the top twenty percent." There, <laughs> I thought that was a, a very interesting comment. <laughs> It's hard to hollow that. Uh, I'll I'll ask one last question, uh, and if then we can conclude. Um, you mentioned Dr. Truman contemplation in your lecture, uh, Dr. Barrett. You uh, earlier in an answer mentioned the spirituality of classical theology. How can we incorporate these spiritual practices? What are they, uh, and how can we as modern people use them to our benefit? Um, That's a good question. I think in a number of ways. I think, first of all, again, to return to my my first answer, I think that ministers and elders have to take a, a, a big responsibility in this in terms of how they structure the worship service. Uh, the worship service has to place uh, the doctrine of God somewhere at its core. And I think uh, we, we, we don't just gather on a Sunday to give thanks to God for what he's done for us. 
we gather to reflect upon who God is in himself and how he has revealed himself to be. So I think there's a liturgical dimension to this. I think that the uh, evangelical practice of, of, of well, you, I, I don't, we used to call it in, in, in Britain, we call it the quiet time. Is that the same, same terminology here? Uh, you know, we're used to meditating on scripture. So I think we already have in place at the heart of our piety, uh, something that lends itself to contemplation. Uh, it's a question of, of, of what we meditate upon. I think meditating on the Psalms, for example, takes you to the heart of a lot of the, the concerns of classical theism, classic theology. So I think in, in our private practices, uh, we need to cultivate that. So those would be the, the two things that I would uh, put forward. And again, ministers, I, I really do think that ministers and what they do from the pulpit sets a tone for a congregation. Maybe next time uh, there's an open prayer meeting and, and the, the minister asks for prayer requests. Maybe the minister himself, after all the press have come in and said, oh, by the way, we should also pray that our minds will be more and more focused on things that are above, the things that do not change. The minister himself can gently remind people that there's more to uh, corporate prayer than, yeah, I rather trivialize if I said praying for granny's bunion, but you know, we pray for people who are seriously ill and that's very appropriate. But I also think it's important the minister reminds people that that's not the only thing uh, that should be going on. I can answer this in 15 seconds, and Matthew's already doing it with this conference, and we joked about that with, with the anniversary of 325, but anyone in your churches, whether you're the pastor or you're thinking of a Sunday school class, you know, you, you got time to plan that, and, you know, the, your pastor shouldn't say no since it's a significant anniversary, but it's a great opportunity coming up to introduce your people to the Nicene Creed, to have a class on it for ministers, to, to do some teaching on it. I'm sure they're going to be lots of good books from academic down to popular level. And it's a great avenue to introduce our people to truths that many of them have heard and probably don't understand nearly as well as we would hope. Yeah, if I could just add one thing. In my experience, both in the pastorates, but then also in the lectern in the classroom, if I had to put my finger on on one thing that is maybe the most um, the most difficult obstacle to overcome, it's this. I think many Christians in the 21st century have been trained to one degree or another to think through a pragmatic lens, to to see not just life in society but life in the church through pragmatism. Uh, this, comes, I, this comes at me a, a, a thousand times a year because maybe you've had this experience too, I don't know, but you will start teaching on the doctrine of God. You'll start to tread into some difficult territory. It could be a society, it could be impassibility, it could be in some simplicity or whatnot. And the, you know the question that's coming is, who cares? Why does this matter? Uh, Stephen Holmes has this, uh, great, he makes this great point. I think it's in his book, Quest for the Trinity, if I'm not mistaken, in which he says, in the best, most biblical, most Christian sense of this sentence, it doesn't matter. <laughs> 
And what he's saying there is what is what many of the biblical authors said. If you're only going to think of Christianity and God in terms of what it can do for me in my life, not that it, that it never connects to that, but if that is the starting point and the ending point and, and the middle entirely, you will end up with a very modern view of God. It is inevitable. It's inescapable. You will end up with, with Moltmann's view of God, uh, in which after World War II, God has to be redefined in terms of the suffering that's taken place. And classical attributes have to go one by one. And so one of the things I try to press on them is when you see the biblical authors, what is, what is their, their end goal? It's worship. Now that doesn't mean that, that your feelings don't matter or that you don't matter as an individual to God. But what it does mean is that ultimately our vision of God is what matters most. And if that doesn't define what it means to be a Christian, I, I'm not sure what does anymore. If God, first and foremost, is not the center, as well as, well, to use the language of classical theology in terms of final causality, his goodness to the very end itself, then every doctrine at that point becomes quite pragmatically oriented. Eschatology right. takes a different turn. It's no, it's no longer ultimately about seeing God and enjoying his glory. And then it just trickles down from there. Uh, I see this on a practical level with the, the severing of theology and spirituality. And I think, well, it's no wonder then that, that people hate theology because it sounds so dry. Because suddenly it's not actually about knowing and contemplating this God and enjoying him forever, as the catechism says. So the classical authors, they got this. They would distinguish between the contemplative life and the active life. And they didn't deny that the active life was, was important. They understood it was very important. And in fact, they would say there's some things about the active life that are necessary to even get to the contemplative life. But they always qualified it. They, they were not pragmatists in the sense. They always qualified it and said, contemplation of God, though, is both the beginning and the end to which all our endeavors drive towards. And if that's in its proper place, then suddenly the liturgy is put in its proper perspective. Catechisms suddenly make God and then, and then move to all things in relation to God, let alone something like the, the lectern in which you start to teach students theology so that who God is then influences what they think about themselves rather than the other way around. If we don't get that right, I think we, we fall into what some theologians have called monopolytheism, uh, which is just a long way of saying our, our worship at that point be, becomes redefined in a way that's not Christian at all. So there's a lot at stake. I hope, I hope that's what you're, you're sensing here, is that there's a lot at stake. Um, and contemplation then... Is, is, is almost the paradigm in which everything from doctrine, doctrine to spirituality to how we define the human person then finds its proper place. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. 
Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.